This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Fair dealing has been a part of Canadian copyright since 1921, and a series of landmark uh, Canadian Supreme Court decisions, in particular in 2004 uh, and in 2012, have outlined the nature and outlined the nature and parameters of fair dealing in Canada. In particular, a 2012 decision that uh, applied to works in the edu- educational context. This was coupled with changes to the Copyright Act brought in 2012, uh, which allowed for education to be a, a, a unique head uh, in fair dealing. Uh, where previously the Supreme Court's decision earlier that year in 2012 had based the same kinds of rights uh, in under the heading of research and private study. Last week was Fair Dealing Week, a chance for a wide range of Canadians, educators, students, librarians, archivists, and creators to celebrate the important role that fair dealing plays in facilitating both fair access and fair compensation to copyrighted works. I ran a series of posts on Canadian education, fair dealing, and copyright that will continue into the coming week. This podcast episode is part of that series, as I'm joined by Stephen Spong, the director of the John and Dotsa Bitov Law Library and copyright officer at Western University. Spong used Fair Dealing Week to write a piece that appeared in multiple press venues lamenting what he termed goblin mode gaslighting on copyright. He joins me on the podcast to talk about fair dealing in practice, the ongoing policy debate, and what goblin mode gaslighting actually means. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really glad that, you, that you've taken the time to jump on. We're recording this on a Friday, coming at the tail end of Fair Dealing Week. And uh, both of us have been active. You've had a couple of pieces that appeared in the London Free Press and the Hill Times. And I've been blogging daily on Canadian copyright, fair dealing, and education. And I'll put, put links to all of the various pieces in the show notes for this podcast. Now, I wanted to bring you on this podcast to talk a bit about the realities on the ground for fair dealing and, and how you see the discourse around policy reform. Why don't we start with a bit of a primer on fair dealing? Some people who listen to this podcast will be experts and uh, will know lots about it. Others may be newer to the issue. And uh, as you know, and, and others may know, the past 20, 20 years or so has seen multiple Supreme Court of Canada decisions involving fair, fair dealing. Can you talk about a bit about that evolution? Of course. Yes. Well, I'm... As you say, I mean, fair dealing has been around for a long time. Really, the, the where its story begins in the, in the modern context, I think, uh, uh, really kind of came to the fore with the CCH and Law Society of Upper Canada uh, case in 2004, which is the case that uh, brought us the, the term large and liberal interpretation uh, um, and as it was initially applied to research, but then later expanded to all of the fair dealing factors. Uh, uh, and it, of course, also introduced the uh, the six-point tests uh, uh, for assessing fair dealing. So that for those who, who don't know, I'm sure many of you do, that's the purpose of the dealing, the character of the dealing, the amount of the dealing, alternatives to the dealing, the nature of the work, and then the effect of the dealing on the work. And 
while the CCH and Lost Society case was really, and it remains a landmark uh, uh, copyright case uh, and uh, really kind of started the story of uh, uh, modern fair dealing interpretation, uh, um, there was still quite a bit thereafter. And, and, and the next sort of major landmark was in 2012, which was uh, um, saw both the, uh, the Pentology, which is what we call the five copyright cases uh, uh, that were released by the Supreme Court on the same day in July of 2012. Uh, uh, and then there was also the Copyright Modernization Act. Uh, and the Modernization Act was, was significant because it added education parity and satire. And that was in addition to uh, uh, research, private study, criticism, review, and news reporting. Uh, and well, there were five cases in the Supreme Court uh, uh, in the Pentology. The really relevant ones were the Alberta and Access Copyright and SoCan and Bell cases. Uh, and well, the Alberta and uh, Access Copyright case covered a lot of areas. Really, it uh, the, the key takeaway there was that it reinforced the CCH test. And then, of course, the most recent case was the the conclusion of the long-running York and Access copyright saga in uh, uh, 2021. What was interesting about that case was that uh, in the, 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 the fair dealing bulk of that was in the lower courts, uh, but uh, the Supreme Court said that uh, the lower court reasoning was flawed and uh, that in addition to considering the fair dealing, uh, the, the, the nature of the dealing, uh, um, at the institutional level, they also needed to consider the student, uh, uh, the student interests as well. You started, of course, with the CCH case, which created that strong grounding, as you suggest, with fair dealing as a user's right, affirmed in the Pentology in 2012, where you get the get the court taking a look at at some of these issues, and again coming quite strongly in favor of a, a large liberal interpretation when it came to fair dealing. But for whatever reason, there were some that still doubted what the court had said. And the access copyright case with York University played out over a number of years. Some suggest there is some amount of uncertainty. I must admit, I'm not in that camp. You know, I think that we have now seen successive Supreme Court of Canada decisions, as you've described. We've seen a turnover in the bench. And so it's not that this is about a single judge or a couple of judges. This is now justices that have changed over time and yet the consistency with which they've examined copyright, particularly with respect to issues around user rights and uh, fair dealing has been very consistent, despite the regular number of cases that we've seen. Um, there are those that suggest there is, that the door is still open. Is it because of that case? Is it because other parties just are hoping against hope that uh, some court or some government will simply take it upon themselves to re-examine the state of the law? H how do you account for for at least some groups trying to, I think, sow ambiguity into the area? Well, I mean, I think that, as I, I think that the, the term that you use is, is a good one, which is to kind of hope against hope. I think that uh, um, the, frankly, for those who like, and, and you know, access copyright, I think is is the, the, the big boogeyman, if you will. Uh, um, I think that for them, there is, it is existential to a certain extent in terms of what their business model is. Uh, and so they need to be able to 
grasp any uh, anything. And uh, so while I think that it is uh, the the language in Access and York is, as you say, quite strong, I think that uh, uh, there, there there's enough there. There's a that they're clinging to it uh, uh, to hope against hope. Uh, and the thing that I find somewhat curious about it is that I had hoped that following that, and I know that uh, discussions that I'd had with, with colleagues at uh, other institutions uh, had been that perhaps this would be a uh, an inflection point in access copyrights business model that they might say, okay, well, you know what, we've run out of road on, on this. Uh, uh, we're going to change to doing transactional licensing uh, or rebrand or do find something, try to be more constructive, say, okay, you know what, this is, this is an opportunity for us to have a constructive uh, uh, dialogue. Uh, and they've not taken the opportunity. And I, I find it puzzling, to be honest. I, I think that it, uh, uh, the, the inability to kind of take the loss and be uh, be a more productive member of the Canadian copyright community is is disappointing. I, I think that that's. I just feel that it is uh, uh, at this point uh, um, unhelpful. Just it, it's it's it, and it, it's baffling to me. Yeah, no, you, you you mentioned you you briefly in in your your one hundred and one overview mentioned the government's reforms back in two thousand and twelve, the addition of several additional purposes within fair dealing, including education. And when you talk about access copyright, you know, not moving on, not adjusting the business model, what it seems that they have done is perhaps at least at this stage not yet pursue additional litigation. Uh, you know, the the defeat at the Supreme Court of Canada was, I think, pretty resounding. But the focus has turned more and more to government and the hope that government yep. will make changes to the Copyright Act. In a sense, they've, you know, the Supreme Court has spoken now multiple times. Their hope, I think, is that the government will speak and, in effect, overrule the Supreme Court with some new restrictions on fair dealing. Can, can you talk a bit uh, uh, about your views on, on, on how that has unfolded, this notion that somehow access copyright is sometimes loath to talk about what we've seen in at the Supreme Court and instead focus more on the 2012 reforms and suggest somehow that they're responsible for what they see as, uh, as, as a fair dealing doctrine that's gone awry. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because, you know, in we often like to talk about, you know, the dialogue between uh, the courts and the legislature. And I, I think that by out of necessity, they, 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 there is that dialogue. And I don't think that it's uh, a bad thing. I think it, it can be, in fact, quite uh, quite constructive. Uh, and I think that in the copyright sphere, we've seen this before, because uh, in 2012, with the Pentology and the Modernization Act at the at more or less the same time, uh, um, the the Modernization Act had uh, was had been in the pipeline for some time, uh, and uh, uh, Bill C thirty two was in the thirty uh, sorry in the fortieth Parliament, and that died on the order paper when they called the election in two thousand and eleven. Uh, um, but 
when the conservatives won re-election, they they simply retabled uh, retabled it as both C11, which ultimately gained royal assent, and so the the, the courts had to know that this that this was coming, and I. I to what extent it influenced their decision uh, uh, in the uh, uh, in the pentology, their, their decisions. Uh, um, you know, you, you, you could you could speculate on that, and I and I, I will say that I think that uh, uh, it, it can't not uh, uh, it, it can't not have some bearing. Uh, um, but I think that now the uh, the Access copyright really, I, I think, is probably seeing that as as their option. Rather than trying to engage constructively with the copyright community, they are attempting to lobby the government to change uh, uh, change the legislation. I do feel that uh, uh, that certainly some of the rhetoric that we're we're seeing coming out of uh, um, uh, places like the the Writers Union and whatnot uh, uh, suggests that there is a bit of a Deliberate misrepresentation of uh, uh, the the sort of losses that uh, uh, they feel are attributable to fair dealing, uh, and as I mentioned in my uh, my commentary in the, the the Free Press and the uh, and the Hill Times, I, I feel that that is deliberately misrepresentative, uh, and uh, I think that it's quite frankly it's it's a bad faith argument. Yeah, no, you refer to this phenomena as as goblin mode gaslighting in the yep. free press, press piece. Can, can, you, can you explain what that means and <laughs> what you see as, as some of the risks to, to the copyright policy process here in Canada? Well, it's funny, actually, because uh, um, the word of the year, both the, so the uh, Oxford... Uh, uh, it is Oxford, but I, I think it's the Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, uh, went with Goblin Mode as their word of the year. It's two words, but they uh, uh, and then uh, Merriam-Webster went with gaslighting. Uh, at they, I mean, they were they're talking about sort of society writ large and and the sort of the the tone of the discourse uh, uh, writ large. And I think that it perfectly applies here because I, I think that as Gaslighting, of course, is uh, uh, something that we've seen a lot uh, uh, over the last few years, especially south of the border. But I think that we're also seeing it here in Canada is a deliberate misrepresentation of the fact that, uh, of, of facts uh, and delivered in such a way as to make people question uh, uh, question reality, question what their assumptions were. And I think that uh, uh, to, by this point, uh, the the jurisprudence uh, and uh, even the legislation is, is firmly on our side by our, I do mean the educational sector uh, and those who would utilize fair dealing. I, I think that it's, it should be well and truly settled. And yet, there are those that are saying that what we are advocating for is somehow wrong. It is, uh, uh, and there's maybe I'm reading into it too much, but it, the, the, I, I would I would say that there's uh, uh, certainly a lot of moral judgment that seems to be placed into it that we are somehow uh, uh, under uh, we're undercutting the uh, uh, sort of the, the, the natural order of how this should work uh, and. 
that's the one part of it is the gaslighting and then the goblin mode goblin mode is basically uh to, to act in a way that is well, i suppose goblin like but uh, uh that is self-interested uh, and that's one of the major aspects of goblin mode is, is to act in a self-interested way uh, and i definitely see that uh, uh, many of these organizations are completely in it for themselves in terms of and there's a business model to it for sure like at, because it is existential for them they it is very much the epitome of self-interest in terms of being able to uh, ensure that this business model that they have set up continues uh, uh, by any by any means necessary. So if that means having to gaslight people uh, uh, into believing that uh, uh, unnecessary reforms are uh, um, inevitable or that, that there, there has been a wrong that needs to be righted, to me suggests uh, uh, that goblin mode gaslighting is absolutely the perfect way to describe it. Okay, it's a, it's, a, I must admit, it's a, a term or at least a combination of terms that that I hadn't encountered before. Now, I you know I I can certainly understand it. Uh, I myself have argued as recently as as this week in the series of pieces that I think uh, there's been a real misrepresentation uh, about the state of Canadian copyright law in terms of how it's been interpreted. I think you've done a nice job of unpacking that. But one of the reasons I was really excited to have you come on the podcast is that you serve as the director of the Bitov Law Library at Western University, or the Copyright Officer um, at the university. Can you talk first, I guess, a little bit about what that entails? And then what I really want to get into is a better understanding, essentially on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, how, how your experiences and your work accord with the claims that somehow it's fair dealing overall and what, and what we're seeing take place in universities or all sorts of, uh, of institutions that are actively you know, exploiting fair dealing and not compensating rather than relying on a whole range of different licenses. In my library director role, my it's it's a lot more operational in terms of uh, ensuring the the smooth day to day running of the law library, as well as doing you know law uh, uh, legal instruction and and stuff like that uh, for legal research. Because uh, uh, I, I do have a JD, uh, and then. The copyright officer role, there's a lot more policy and advisory work there. And uh, so ensuring that we uh, that our copyright policies are up to date, we are actually currently undergoing a policy review following uh, the York and uh, access copyright decision and doing a lot of advising. We and, and that was definitely something that there was a lot of in the height of the pandemic uh, uh, in terms of advising faculty as to what their what they could do with their materials and how they could uh, uh, ensure that students were getting proper access to the materials. Uh, and uh, um, then doing a lot of instruction. I, I work with the Center for Teaching and Learning uh, uh, for doing uh, uh, course working with uh, uh, course developers and stuff like that so it's it's a big portfolio i i love it though i have to say that the uh, uh very very different things uh, and uh, but it, it keeps it diverse part of that role uh, and uh, one of the really interesting things i was able to do in the in the pandemic was uh, uh well 
Western did uh, did join the Hadi Trust ETAS. Uh, uh, Western was also the pilot site for a, a controlled digital lending platform that we uh, were offering through our uh, uh, through the Ontario Council of University Libraries, uh, and uh, so we had our own ETAS platform, and we were the we were the pilot site for it, uh, and so we were looking to uh, uh, work with. Uh, course reserve. So it was, uh, it was largely for uh, short-term loans and our course reserves. And so that was a really interesting pilot. Unfortunately, we shut it down the same time that, as Hadi Trust uh, um, had, but it was, it was cool to see that we could actually do it and uh, to kind of work through those, uh, uh, work through those issues. So we, I was working with our general counsel as well as external uh, uh, legal counsel to develop those policies. Uh, and we are continuing to look at ways in which controlled digital lending uh, could be developed further uh, moving, uh, uh, moving forward. And there is a lot of work that's being done on that front, sort of behind the scenes, not just at Western, but uh, uh, through vendors that are looking to uh, enable uh, various tools to to allow uh, uh, controlled digital lending uh, um, according to different sort of risk tolerance levels. So I think that that has definitely been one of the more edifying and sort of exciting things that I've done in my copyright officer role at, at Western is to be kind of at the um, on the leading edge of, of getting uh, of, of developing controlled digital lending as uh, uh, that has moved away from theory uh, and more into practice. Because I know there's been a lot of uh, discussion about this is sort of the theoretical applications of it uh, uh, in the years preceding the pandemic, but to actually be able to be involved in uh, bringing that forward in the Canadian context was was fantastic. Okay, interesting. Uh, I mean, so those are some exciting initiatives. Can you tell me specifically about the use of materials, though? I guess, uh, you know, some of the focus has been around site licensing, either in the law faculty or otherwise, transactional licenses, open access. You know, in, in the world of, of a law student or working to make materials available to students more broadly, you know, how important is fair dealing as part of that process? How much of it is uh, about the various kinds of licenses that you've that you've that you've signed on to. How much of it is students going out and purchasing um, original texts, whether ebook or otherwise? You know, essentially, we keep hearing that somehow it's it's fair dealing that's that plays such a dominant role. And I'm curious from your on the ground experience about um, what it means for the for an average student or professor in terms of access and use of materials. To be honest with you, fair dealing, I don't, uh, our course reserves, so the course reserves are run out of our uh, user services team, uh, uh, and it, it's plugged right into our online uh, learning management system. But fair dealing is a relatively small portion of it. A lot of the, like our collections budget had just absolutely ballooned in the last few years uh, uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, because we've had to purchase a lot of materials, a lot of materials that are available, that, that might be available in print as well, that we, you know, people would have been relying on uh, in 
uh, uh, course reserves and, and and other physical mediums. And so the the move to online and licensed materials has been has been kind of significant and profound uh, and also very very expensive. So there has been a huge amount of money spent there. Uh, so I. Uh, I find it kind of very disingenuous. I, I would think that uh, uh, for for a lot of the publishers, uh, yes, they've had to, in some cases, they've kind of had to meet us in the middle a little bit in terms of uh, uh, getting some material online or in digital formats that they might not have otherwise had. The idea that fair dealing is somehow this nefarious means of going and ripping off huge numbers of materials and providing it for free is just simply not true. Uh, uh, I I would love it to be that we could have uh, uh, like digital copies that we own and whatnot. But frankly, a lot of the stuff we are, we're just licensing it and we don't even own it. Uh, and, but it is operationally uh, uh, a lot easier for us. We've also been developing other means of uh, um, Accessing materials such as you know open access, we've been Western Libraries has been investing in that. Uh, we uh, in the Western Law Library, we are uh, we've actually just in the last week put uh, uh, opened a grant. It's first first of its kind, I believe, in Canada uh, uh, to create uh, a law uh, law faculty specific open educational resource grant. Uh, and try to encourage uh, uh, those sorts of materials. You know, I think you, you, you've highlighted the evolution that you started to see. Some of it spurred by the pandemic, some of it spurred by digital, uh, some of it by resource constraints that, that have moved more and more towards various kinds of licensing, uh, fair dealing being viewed. I think it's notable, fair dealing being viewed as a, a resource intensive uh, matter of clearance. And so the the goal oftentimes is to, to simplify things and licenses do that. Um, it's just the licenses. It sounds like that, that you're able to make use of offer up flexibility that, that isn't typically found in an access copyright license. Exactly. And I, that's the thing that I find interesting is that, that it would, from an access copyright perspective, uh, uh, we, in Canada, we would love to have a Canadian equivalent to the copyright clearance center where, we could go and clear stuff. Uh, uh, it's, it's sort of one-stop shopping for that. And I, access copyright seems like the obvious that they're in need, like we're in need of a resource and they're in need of a business model. Why can't we reconcile this? It seems like, it seems like an obvious thing, but uh, it, it hasn't happened. Yeah. At least not yet, but uh Perhaps hope springs eternal that we will see some of the changes. Certainly the, the law has evolved in some, some notable ways. And I'm glad that you're finding the time to both the, you know, practice making works available through your various positions and taking the time during Fair Dealing Week to speak out on some of the policy developments as well. So, uh, Stephen, thanks for that work. And thanks for joining me on the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Michael. I appreciate it. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. 
You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.